0: Hello and welcome to Some Other Sphere, a podcast exploring our strange world, one conversation at a time, hosted by Rick Palmer. My guest for this episode is Gary Opit. Gary is an Australian zoologist, cryptozoologist and author. He also hosts a wildlife talkback radio show on ABC North Coast New South Wales local radio and between 1997 and 2015 conducted a citizen science project collecting data based on the phone calls and emails he received during that time from people seeking assistance identifying wildlife they had encountered. Often these would turn out to be examples of rare known and existing species of animal, but a significant amount were not, and indicated the survival of animals previously thought long extinct on the Australian mainland, such as the thylacine and marsupial lion, as well as completely unknown species, including ape and hominid like creatures, commonly referred to in Australia as yaoi's. Gary has had an incredibly varied career, working as a park ranger, as well as at a number of schools and universities, teaching subjects such as anthropology, ecology, zoology and botany. His knowledge of the wildlife of Australia is extensive, as is that of the history of cryptid sightings in the country. As you might imagine, our conversation in this episode is a wide-ranging one, I talk with Gary about how his interest in Australian cryptids started, the fossil record of wildlife in Australia, and the range of habitats that could potentially allow the survival of some of those species into the modern day. Gary also talks about some of his own experiences, as well as encounters that other people have had with an impressive array of unusual creatures. It was a pleasure to talk with him on this very interesting subject. Enjoy. Gary, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. You've had a long-held interest in cryptozoology. How did that all start for you?
1: Well, growing up in Sydney, uh, in, and I was growing up in the 1950s, I was very interested in the natural environment, and I was uh really enjoyed identifying the plants and animals in my locality and uh buying the first uh field guides or books to Australian animals and plants and um from an early age, reading books on natural history uh, uh, I began to see uh, articles about Loch Ness monsters and Bigfoot, and I thought, and yetis, and I thought, uh, oh, I must be wonderful to, to live in one of those countries that's got unknown animals because in Australia we know everything that's here and there's no mysteries at all. And then over time, uh, more and more mysteries began to develop, and we began to realize that we're, uh, that, that there are actually several large species of animals that we had no knowledge of whatsoever. And I became aware of that the first time in 1971, when I was a national park ranger uh, up in uh, uh, Lamington National Park behind the Gold Coast. And we lived in a, a simple wooden cabin high in the mountains near a a resort called O'Reilly's Guest House and we had campers who would come in and camp and 100 kilometres of of trail through the subtropical rainforest and uh, our main duties was patrolling the tracks and repairing uh, damaged tracks, uh, rainforest trees falling across the tracks that we'd have to cut uh, with axes Uh, and then one night uh, something attacked our rangers' quarters and thumped on the walls of the rangers' house, and uh, 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 and then uh, whatever it was went under the house and began throwing our tools out onto the back lawn. And this was all in pitch darkness, uh, and then it disappeared. A- and of course, at first we thought it must be some madman, but. <laughs> Why would someone dump the walls of the, of our house, the ranger's house? Uh, and in those days, like, um, you know, there was virtually almost no charge to come to the national park and we'd supply timber and help people out so that no one would have a grudge or anything against us. Uh, and uh, we couldn't understand what exactly was going on. Uh, and then I walked down to our wood pile because we didn't have electricity besides um <laughs> dull electric lights. We had a a fuel stove where we had to uh, uh, fill it full of timber and set it alight so we could get some hot water. We had a big copper uh, uh, container out the back that we'd light a fire under so we could have hot water to have a wash with. Uh, We had a fridge that ran on kerosene. So it was very primitive conditions. Uh, and, uh, uh, And this wood pile we had measured about, uh, three or four meters in length and a couple of meters high and we'd uh, hammered with big sledge hammers uh, big timber stakes into the ground maybe a meter into the ground and the whole edifice was about two meters high uh, a meter wide and something had pulled these timber stakes out of the ground Uh, and had thrown the wood all over the place. And that was just like a complete nut of mystery. But I went and asked the O'Reillys who had been there for decades, uh, they were the early settlers, and uh, then they'd established a guest house there, and they asked them if they knew of anything that could possibly do something like that. Uh, And they said, yes, there is an unknown animal, and they knew it as Uh, and uh, 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 And... uh, and that came from the Blue Mountains. Uh, that that fa- their family grew up in the, in valleys in the rugged Blue Mountains behind Sydney, and and the uh, the the Aboriginal people, the First Nation people, uh, uh, they called that Guba. But, but Guba was actually the name for white people, apparently. But they also used that name for anything sort of mysterious. Uh, and uh, so the uh, these people said that they'd. Uh, that they knew this animal existed though they were very terrified of it it was very frightening uh, but they couldn't really say exactly what it looked like Uh, and the uh, the O'Reilly's families themselves some of the members of the family they had heard this um, horrific loud bellowing roaring calls unlike anything they would they've ever heard Uh, and it was only occasionally that it was heard and so they knew, knew it was a mystery animal, but had absolutely no idea what it was. Uh, and, and they knew that at certain times, this um, this goober, uh, this animal or whatever it was, uh, 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 would give high pitched screams, and the horses would be frightened. And, and also Bernard O'Reilly said that he was often followed um, on the rainforest tracks, riding on these tracks or walking. Uh, and uh, uh, and he, would go, he could hear something following him. So he'd go back to try to see what it was, but he could never find out what it was. So we didn't really have any idea, except we knew that there was uh, uh, mystery animals uh, known as bunyips. And there were two kinds of bunyips. So the bunyips that lived in the rivers uh, and the bunyips that lived in the mountains. So this was uh, regarded as a mountain bunyip and the head ranger, he mentioned that, yes, this this animal, we don't know what it looks like. It's sort of like a, maybe a giant koala or something. Uh, and uh, uh, it moves around at night. It probably lives on the escarpments, on the sheer cliffs, because this national park, uh, Lamington, and the adjacent Springbrook and Border Ranges, is, uh, is, uh makes up part of the New South Wales, Queensland state borders. And there's remains the of a, a 20 million year old volcanic caldera so it's an ancient extinct volcano with sheer sides quite vast one of the largest largest volcanoes in the southern hemisphere and they're covered in uh, undisturbed rainforest and most of its national park because it's so rugged with ravines and waterfalls Uh, and uh, and so it was believed that this that this strange animal whatever it was lived on the escarpment and only came around at at night. And so we had no idea about it whatsoever. Uh, And then in 19, that was 71. In 1973, I was in, uh, I spent uh, one and a half years, 73, 74, in Papua New Guinea. Uh, I I, I was the first to lecture on on ecology at the uh, New Guinea University lay campus. Uh, and the first to do an ecological survey for them, and also spent nine months with the WOW Ecology Institute, which is a group of um, uh, American scientists from Bishop Museum in Hawaii, and we're up at high altitude, about 4,000 feet and higher, uh, 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 studying the fauna and flora. And, uh, uh, And there in the rainforest, And, of course, in Australia and New Guinea, it's all Australian fauna. So we have no Southeast Asian animals. So there's no apes. uh, There's no orangutans or gibbons or monkeys or squirrels or rats or deer uh, or or, or, or cats. Uh, All our animals are ancient gondwana marsupials. And our plants and animals are related to the South American animals and plants that had been divided for 100 million years, ancient Gondwana species. Uh, And Australia had fabulous megafauna, most of which went extinct 30 to 40,000 years ago. Uh, So we had uh, giant wombats the size of rhinos and hippos. We had giant kangaroos, giant tortoises, giant lizards, marsupial lions, a whole array of spectacular large lizards. And 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 mammals and birds, giant birds, all known from fossils, ancient fossils found in caves in particular. Uh, but the other, the other, the animals we had were small, no large, powerful animals, uh, and nothing that made these bizarre calls. So, so we were. It was a complete mystery, and it wasn't until um, one of the, our national park rangers had a face-to-face encounter uh, with this, with this guber or this mountain bunyip. Uh, and uh, his name was Percy Window and he was the head ranger of Springbrook National Park, which was the next national park to, to the east uh, divided by the Luvar Valley and he was uh, at this uh, location called best of all lookouts uh, w- w- which is a sheer escarpment about a th- about three thousand feet tall down into the valley and he encountered this amazing animal that was like a gorilla uh, and they they stood and looked at each other for, for about five minutes before it walked off and he came back to the rangers' quarters and one of my best mates was there and he told him what he had seen and so that's the first time we, we got an idea that, that we had an animal here completely unknown to science uh, and, and looked something like a gorilla uh, and uh, so then in 1975 uh, i uh, was in a very remote rainforest area and and uh, uh, something began roaring uh, loud bellowing roars a little bit like the calls i would heard in new guinea uh, once again a- an animal that sounded maybe you couldn't it couldn't quite tell what it was you know it, it, it certainly wasn't a big cat but it was as loud and and, and bellowing and roaring like a lion Uh, and uh, but it did have a bit of a primate feel about it and I'd spent years uh, uh, studying uh, uh, wildlife and knew all the calls of everything so uh, yeah so so we finally began to establish the fact in the 1970s that we had some incredible two, two to three meter tall generally dark brown to black furred primate like animal and then we realized that it was very much like the uh, American Bigfoot or Sasquatch, and also probably very close, close similar to the uh, the Himalayan Yeti, uh, and so that's how it all slowly began, uh, and uh, and then uh, I had uh, several other uh, close encounters where I only heard the animal roaring, uh, and it would roar for maybe uh, five minutes, and and so I'd give these loud bellowing roaring calls usually always at night on very rare occasions uh but you could hear from maybe a hundred meters away uh sort of a call that would go like yay 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 but unlike any animal that we know and and, uh, as a biologist you know I, i worked in wildlife parks i knew the calls of all the animals and very few people knew this animal existed uh and then in 1996 living in another remote area, uh, I heard the calls of probably the same species or something very similar to it, but it was a series of barks and they were in groups of three and, and it was going like, are you, are you, are you? And then it would gurgle. <laughs> <laughs> and so really bizarre calls. Uh, and in meanwhile, um, other people um, were occasionally encountering it uh, and I didn't have an encounter until about 2008, um, when I finally had one of these animals uh, 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 come moving towards me, and it was cracking two large sticks together. So, uh, so this thing was pushing through very heavy vegetation. I was looking with binoculars, uh, and uh, it was cracking these loud sticks together, so a really loud crack-like sounds. Uh, and that went on for about 20 minutes as it was walking backwards and forwards You know, only 10 or 15, 20 meters away from me. Uh, but I could only uh, get glimpses of it through, with the binoculars through the, through the, uh, through the vegetation. A- and then my, uh, our daughter was actually chased by one. A- a- and, uh, it was like a big gorilla like animal, three meters high with uh, a shaggy Brown hair. Uh, and and so, uh, with all of these en- encounters, you know, we began to realise that that we we not only had a bigfoot-like animal, uh, but we also had other species as well. Uh, and, and of course, I was fortunate enough to see in 1969, driving home between Brisbane and the Gold Coast where I lived, uh, and saw forests and, and 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 farms in those days. A large animal about the size of a leopard. Uh, but it was obviously a marsupial carnivore, um, so not a thing supposed to exist. And it was more likely than not an animal we know as Thylacoleo carnifex, the marsupial lion, because it was a very powerful marsupial, but but it moved as if it was a, one of our uh, brush-tailed possums, one of our other other smaller animals. Uh, And so, uh, and then also, I've been doing a radio show for 27 years, wildlife identifications, and I've got very large numbers of 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 people phoning up asking for identifications of of known animals, of course, and uh, quite a few um, reports of animals that we couldn't identify. So it's been a a long process of uh, because I spent most of my time out in the field uh, doing uh, field research, uh, particularly. Uh, plant and animal surveys for development applications uh, and ecological assessments
0: Uh,
1: and so I know the plants and animals really well spent most of my time in the bush uh, identifying plants and animals and uh, uh, but it's very difficult to come across one of these one of these bizarre unknown cryptozoological species.
0: Right yeah so Earlier on, you were talking about the history of uh, fauna in Australia and how there isn't that that connection between the types of animals you get in Asia and what are in in Australia. I I know that Australia has a very unique wildlife. Does that influence the interpretations of what some of these cryptids might be? Is there a connection between the fossil record and the best known cryptids that, that people report seeing in Australia?
1: Yeah, well, so the the most commonly observed cryptid is the Tasmanian tiger or thylacine, which is supposed to have gone extinct in nineteen sixty. Uh, sorry, nineteen thirty six. Uh, however, a later scientific uh, beliefs is it survived until the 1990s uh, but it's simply uh, there's been many anecdotal reports of it uh, not only in Tasmania but all over mainland Australia uh, and so it's so uh, where it was known from fossil records from about 3,000 years ago and believed to have gone extinct about maybe 3,000 years ago on the mainland but um, we've got reports of them from all over the place and I've had about 50 reports or 60 reports just from uh, northeastern New South Wales uh, then we've also had reports of what uh, of what appears to be the marsupial lion, which is not a lion, of course, but um, it's related, uh, uh, not even related to the Tasmanian tiger or, th- or thylacine, thylacoleo, uh, the marsupial lions are actually real, cl- more closely related to kangaroos and koalas and wombats and possums, and it's sort of like a gigantuous possum, uh, uh, well known in the fossil record. Uh, and uh, there's been many reports of that and we've also had a few reports of of animals that sound like giant wombats um known from the fossil record uh, uh, uh footprints and the occasional report of giant birds that were uh, giant flightless birds like gigantic emus but twice the size uh, uh reports of, of the bunyip that i mentioned earlier which was um, uh, uh, a couple of different aquatic species, who are very rare, and one seems to have been a freshwater seal, and the other seems to have been a marsupial otter, uh, and they're only very occasionally observed and, and never captured, uh, and uh, so we don't know what they were. And then this, uh, the 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 what we now uh, refer to as the yowie. uh, and uh, and we seem to have even. A couple of different species of those and and one of these one of these yaowies um, uh, appears to be a a, a, a fossil uh, surviving species known only from fossils a thing called um, the mountain diprotodontid holotherium thomasetii so this was sort of like a marsupial panda or a marsupial gorilla and we've got a report of one of those from uh, from 1912 uh this well, so this is thing that looked like a bigfoot but it had a pouch just like a kangaroo uh with a, a, a baby in its pouch uh, and it was seen the female was seen three times in 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 the early days of the 20th century uh and it was encountered quite a few times regarded as harmless but the only the the only uh, evidence that it, that such an animal ever existed was simply from people writing letters to the editor of the of the say the Sydney newspapers describing what they've seen, uh, and then uh, and most of the re- encounter reports we have uh, with uh, with Yowies, and they seem to be uh, a, a huge uh, hominid or even a hominin, uh, but it's basically a hairy man. Uh, and and we're very well known to the uh, First Nation people, the Aboriginal people, and Yowie is one of the names. There are many other names: Doogal and Charawara. It's quite a variety of names, uh, and and but there's also a little species as well that's only a metre tall, and generally known as a Jundjudi, uh or a nimbinji. and so and so we believe that these primates whatever they are and of course we've we've got we've got almost no photographs but huge numbers of reports anecdotal reports from people who contact us uh, and and tell us what they've seen and the reports even they come from different people at different localities over different time periods are always the same descriptions and so a very large two to three meter tall black haired bigfoot like animal uh basically harmless will will if you encounter one, uh, they usually run for their life and usually the witness runs for their life, so you don't get a detailed description. But, but they're being encountered all the time, uh, though we only rediscovered really this with the uh, with the internet and people setting up Facebook accounts <laughs> uh, 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 crypto, amateur cryptozoologists who are interested in these animals uh, and uh, requesting sighting reports, and have literally received hundreds upon hundreds of detailed reports, uh, and particularly from certain localities. So, so we we believe that we 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 may have some uh, ancient um, species that are known from our fossil record in Australia, um, and we may also have to a couple of different species of, of primate that entered Australia uh, from uh, Southeast Asia across the Timor Sea. And, and the only way they would liable to have got here was uh, 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 rafting across, uh, probably accidental rafting when uh, uh, earthquakes earthquakes and tsunamis and cyclones, hurricanes have um, torn uh, uh, parts of the riverbank uh, away and and uh, floated out the sea with um, native animals and that 's how Australia originally got its native rats and and uh, uh, venomous snakes from southeast Asia they came across rafting on vegetation and so we believe that that may be the way that these other two anim- animal species or hominid species or whatever they are ate like big primate like species and a little primate like species uh, uh, ended this continent. Thank you for
0: taking the time to listen to this episode of the podcast. I hope you're enjoying it so far. I have a favor to ask if that's okay. Once the episode is finished, if you can leave a rating, a short review, and maybe even share it on social media, I'd be very grateful. They're all brilliant ways to promote some other sphere, to help people like yourself find it and increase listenership. If you would like to get in touch by email, I would love to hear from you with feedback or ideas for future topics and guests. The address is someothersphere at gmail.com. Thank you again. And now, back to the episode. So, with some of these uh, cryptids and the, the species that they might be, I get the sense that in order for them to have survived into the modern day, they would have had to live in isolation. Can you just talk a little bit about Australia itself and its the type of habitats it has and and how that might support these creatures surviving into the modern day?
1: Yes, yeah, so the Australian continent is about the size of Europe, of Western Europe or the size of in Un- United States. Uh, of course, it's in the southern hemisphere uh, between Antarctica and and, and uh, Indonesia and completely surrounded by oceans, so the Pacific Ocean to the east and Indian Ocean to the south, Uh, and it was originally connected to Antarctica, and the Australian continent is is drifting north at a speed of about six centimetres a year, Uh, and so uh, uh, geologists and other scientists have have determined that uh, about 50, 50 million years ago, we were joined to Antarctica and 100 million years ago we were joined to south america and 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 africa as well and and these continents began to break apart that the supercontinent of gondwana uh and uh the, uh, the antarctica had the same animals and plants as South America and Australia and Africa, these ancient species. And it was in Gondwana that um, these incredibly ancient species like uh, uh, platypus and 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 echidna and, and marsupials like the koalas and kangaroos and wombats and possums and Tasmanian tigers and marsupial lions all evolved along with a number of other species. And so, our plants and animals are, are most closely related to the South American animals and plants, and the uh, and many of our plants, our proteas, proteaceae, are related to the South African protea plants. And so, uh, uh, the uh, the currents of white hot magma about a hundred kilometres below the, our feet in Australia began dragging us north. Uh, and so we've been cut off completely from the rest of the world as a giant island for, a for about 50 million years. And, and we've been, we've never been joined to uh, 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 South, uh, Southeast Asia. So we've never been joined to the Northern hemisphere. So that's why we never received any of those Eurasian animals like cats and bears and, and deer and monkeys and squirrels and, 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 uh, that whole array of different species. And so Australia uh, was covered in rainforest, completely covered in rainforest and Uluru or Ayers Rock, was surrounded by rainforest. And we've got wonderful fossil deposits showing a huge array of fabulous species, uh, all uniquely Australian species, uh, and and all of the marsupials, or these very ancient monotremes, platypus and, and echidna, egg-laying uh, mammals that that uh, that that uh, survive from the days of the dinosaurs, and and so we're still moving north and uh, completely cut off. And around about around about uh, maybe a hundred thousand years ago, uh, the first humans entered the Australian continent. Uh, And they're the people that we know today as Aboriginal people. And we've got, there were um, uh, three or four hundred different nations, you know, or tribal groups. And in our locality in north-eastern New South Wales are the Bunjalung people, uh, and the Bunjalung people, of course, uh, uh, lived in harmony with the environment. They were hunters and gatherers and, and also um, subsistence farmers, um, farming the, the native plants. Uh, and uh, very peaceful people, not at all warlike. Uh, uh, but Australia's got a very uh a poor infertile soils and a very unreliable continent. And uh, uh, unreliable weather, I mean to say. So the continent's are very uh, infertile, uh, and and our rainfall rainfall is is uh, comes and goes. So, so the reason for that is um, the Australian continent is now like halfway between Antarctica and uh, and and Southeast Asia, and uh, the, the northern third is tropical. Uh, then the the centre is subtropical. Uh, the uh, the southern the southern third is temperate, uh, and and uh, because we're so far from the poles, we didn't get any glaciation. So like you, you, in the northern hemisphere, uh, for millions of years, uh, the landscape was was covered. Uh, in in giant glaciers um three or four kilometres thick, often, and they ground all the rocks into soil and gouged out big uh, hollows in the ground everywhere. And then, uh, when the ice age finished about ten thousand years ago, um, Eurasia and North America is covered in wonderful fertile soils and and uh, and rich uh, 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 rich environments, full of lots of species and lots of waterways. But Australia has always been very poor soils because we never had those those uh, glaciers so we've got a very infertile environment and the animals are very slow to reproduce uh, but they're e- extremely adapted to the environment and the other fascinating thing is as Australia's been moving north uh, the planet's been cooling down because once Australia separated from Antarctica the Antarctic uh, uh, ocean currents were able to sweep Continuously around the continent of ice of Antarctica, and that's acted as a planet sized refrigerator, and slowly began to to freeze the planet and That's why we went into these ice ages lasting millions of years. but the Israeli continent drew moving north <coughs> the, the 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 climate stayed exactly the same, there was no change in the climate, so all these incredibly prehistoric animals survived to the present, so we've now got lungfish. Um, uh, that have unchanged in three to four hundred million years living in freshwater rivers in southeast Queensland we've got egg laying platypuses uh, uh, we've got fossils of which from 120 million years ago so they lived with the dinosaurs for 60 million years before they went extinct Uh, and we've got all our wonderful marsupials so it's a really unique Um, continent of animals and plants an incredible diversity of different species of plants and animals that are found nowhere else on earth.
0: Right okay and in terms of human interaction with the landscape am am I right in thinking that a a lot of the human population is around the coast and not in the interior of the country so there's not going to be as much interaction between the wildlife of a country in Australia as for example, here in the UK where people re- report big cats as well, but it feels like in Australia there's more chance of these species surviving without being noticed as much.
1: Yes, look, that's that's because Australia, as I said before, it's about the size of Europe or about the size of, of United States, but we've only got 25 million people uh, living here, uh, and the it's the southeastern Uh, uh, say uh, a quarter of Australia uh, that's wet and fertile uh, and also right up the the uh, eastern coast of Australia and then you've got a, a small area very tiny area in the southwestern corner of australia the southwest and western australia that's also well watered and and relatively fertile and so that's where the majority of people are able to settle Uh, and and so uh, of course originally the the population all came from mainly from the united kingdom but also from europe and some people from asia Uh, of course the the the, uh, australia was the last continent to be discovered uh, by by Westerners of course, but had been discovered a hundred thousand years earlier by by people um originally. Uh, and they live right across the continent and still do to a degree, particularly across the, the more tropical and the more arid areas where where European or British people um, couldn't really make a living. Uh, and so the the eastern coast of Australia is very it's somewhat fertile and thickly forested with unique trees eucalypts and and rainforests uh much of which were destroyed for agriculture uh and then you've got the uh, uh the about two thirds of the continent is arid uh and so you could imagine say imagine the United States with one road running around the coastline and and one road running. Um, north south from the middle of the continent, so that's right from 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 uh, Adelaide to Darwin, uh, and, and, and <laughs> only one road running west east west from say Sydney to Perth and through Adelaide, uh, and the rest um, there's only the there's another another road that runs from Queensland. Uh, uh, to meet uh, north of Alice Springs and runs up to Darwin, and another rough road that runs across the top of it. So, so we've got these vast wildernesses, uh, almost unexplored. Like a, you know, you can fly over them, but they're all vegetated. So we don't have, we don't. Our deserts aren't like the Sahara or anything. We don't have sand dune deserts. They're covered in 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 uh, forests of of uh, uh, eucalyptus trees and and acacia trees uh, uh only small trees uh, uh and shrublands and and grasslands with spinifex clumps and you've got native animals uh living all through that mammals birds reptiles amphibians very abundant number of species Uh, And we've also got these spectacular rugged mountain range and mountains in Australia are plateaus. And and so the Great Dividing Range um, extends from west of Melbourne in the southeastern corner of the continent all the way up, only like 100 miles inland or or whatever from the coast, something like that. Uh, It varies, of course. And then it runs all the way up into Queensland and continues up into Cape York Peninsula. And then you've got the whole tropical top of australia uh so and that's incredible a lot of it's incredibly rugged so we've got vast areas that virtually no one set foot in
0: right okay and in your opinion is there the the habitat to support a population of animals like what you've described as the yara because based on the reports that people have had and what you've described these are very large animals that would you would, would assume would require quite a lot of, of food um yes. do you is there the habitat there to support a population
1: yes. yeah look it, the habitat's vast and everywhere and it extends very close to the towns and cities because uh so any all of the level areas near the rivers that long ago 150 years ago or, or lo- uh, earlier were cleared for agriculture uh, and we've got uh, uh, and in particularly the the areas inland of the Great Dividing Range, so inland, you know, a couple of hundred miles, say, um, extending for hundreds of miles and covering vast areas, you have huge uh, farms growing cotton and and wheat and huge uh, cattle farms that, that, that are just vast and sheep stations, sheep farms. Uh, and then we've got all kinds of crops, crops, uh, uh, all kinds of uh, uh fruit and and vegetables and everything so and we've got the full range from the trop- tropical to the temperate so there's a vast amount of food and there's vast areas of australia that are heavily farmed uh and, and full of small towns small country towns with maybe just a few hundred but these towns might be say a, 100 miles or 50 miles uh, uh, apart from one, one another and uh, most of them just very small villages uh, and but but all the all the the, the mountainous and hilly country is very poor soil it's sandstone a lot of it uh or it can be granite uh or can be volcanic and and of course none of that's virtually been touched a, a lot of it's sheer cliffs a lot of it's been logged um than the timber industry but a, but a lot of it ha, ha, has been uh, left intact uh, because there's so there's such a vast area and and then what's happened, of course, originally uh, most of the people were making their li- living living on the farms, rural workers. Uh, but of course, with the advent of technology, uh, um, farming was done instead of obviously with horses and and and, and by hand. Uh, uh, And machinery took over. And so the population eventually like had happened all over the world moved to the cities. So now we've got virtually majority of our population is in the in the cities, and they're all spending their time as people do all over the world looking at their mobile phones and working and, and trying to make a living uh and then you've got these vast areas uh with v- huge farms where you need a plane to fly around a, to, or a helicopter to look for your cattle uh and, and cuz everything is on a gigantic scale here uh and then uh all of the all of the uh, undisturbed habitat, or or less disturbed, all the rocky habitat, and, and Australia's like because there's no glaciation. It's a land of of rocks and and mountains and escarpments, sheer cliffs, uh, are very rocky and boulders everywhere. You can hardly move through it. All heavily forested, uh, and so these were cre- turned into national parks uh, because they simply couldn't do anything with them. There was you know there was no use. Trying to develop them in some way, uh, and also because we've got a lack of water, we've got a, a, the climate is is unstable. Uh, so we don't have a, a, a we do have a, a regular wet season in the tropics, but we uh, it, it's a land of, uh, of, of flooding rains and and droughts and bushfires. But the animals are all the native animals are all adapted to it. And then, as well as that, then the uh, the British and and other settlers introduced. A whole array of domestic animals that had never existed here before, and they've run wild so now we've got literally millions of wild pigs, wild deer, wild cattle, wild horses, wild donkeys, wild goats <laughs> there's all kinds of uh, feral animals and plus we've got we've got foxes that were introduced and 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 cats, and of course we have our native dingo, but there's no large native carnivores just to some of our lizards our dominant predators are reptiles so we have big pythons carpet pythons particularly in eastern australia and across much of the rest of australia that can be two three four meters long and live in everybody's roof uh cavity uh and, and hunt rats and um, we love our pythons uh mm-hmm. but we've got lots of uh snakes uh and uh and, and we've also got uh lots of huge lizards, goannas or iguanas. And the the goanna came from the word iguana, but they're actually monitors, um, so like Komodo dragons. And and we have three or four of those roaming around our house virtually every day during the summer um, exploring, and uh, we throw any of our food st- scraps out for them and any national park you go to the picnic area these giant lizards say six or seven feet long are walking around looking at you and ready to grab anything that's left over or if you throw them something they'll grab it and eat it they're all harmless of course they won't attack you uh so we've got uh uh, and this these rugged landscapes run right into the edges of towns so we get reports of these australian bigfoot actually in the towns themselves and they climb over houses (laughs) and uh, and so of course the as i said i've been doing this radio program a nature-based radio program every week of the year for 27 years on abc north coast uh new south wales radio uh, and it's on every Saturday morning at 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 6:50. In fact, it's going to be on tomorrow morning at 6:50, and I'll be talking about mouse spiders. We get giant spiders in Australia, and so it's normal to get huntsman spiders as large as your hand on the walls of your house, inside and out. Right. But they mean nothing. They're, they mean nothing to most of us because we grew up with them. They're like pets. You know, you look at them as like. <laughs> As a child, I used to pick them up and pat them. Uh, they won't bite you unless you, you hurt them. They're they're harmless, uh, and uh, but we we mainly keeps we've got screens because we've got to keep all the insects and everything out of our ha- out of our houses because because uh, you know the place is full of all kinds of insects, snakes, and everything else. But so so uh, so people f- have been phoning me up for twenty seven years describing what. What they've been seeing in their gardens, or, or 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 want some advice, or want identifications. We've identified about four hundred different species of animals for them. This is just in northeast New South Wales, uh, but I've also received these other reports. And and, and the majority of people that don't know about these cryptozoological animals, they've heard about them. The same way most Americans probably have heard about. Uh, or, 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 uh, bigfoot or sasquatch as have most of the people around the western world in the uk and other places but 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 generally you don't ever encounter one of these animals because you know if they do exist they're very rare and they're very difficult to encounter but in australia the account the encounters are common happening all the time and, and people uh, and they make their headlines quite regularly in the newspapers but the general public of course they don't know anything about this because they're not really interested in the wildlife. You know, they're doing what everybody's doing. They're, they're trying to make a living. They, they, they've got kids to take care of. They've got a mortgage to pay. They're driving backwards and forwards. The cost of living is going up. Uh, uh, they they enjoy the wildlife. like They watch wildlife documentaries, those that are interested. <laughs> but the majority of them are living in, in urban areas, in suburbs, and they... Uh, uh, they're living on farms and and, uh, and small towns but the people in the countryside uh, see these animals uh, on occasion not common because these animals seem to be all predators uh, the majority of them and so they seem to uh, exist uh, naturally in small numbers with very large territories as is normal with any large predator so like a tiger uh, or a lion pride of lions or something or other you know, in in a in a landscape, they're not everywhere like say the deer are. Um, you you only have uh, a, a, a single individual, or maybe a a, a female with cubs um, that will that will own and roam a particular territory, and those territories can be quite large. And so we seem to have uh, these animals, these yowies in particular. They seem to be they they seem to be primarily carnivorous. But um, they definitely also eat eat um, vegetation or or or, or um, vegetables or nuts or what have you. Um, we don't really know because <coughs> we can only go by go, go from the reports that we received. They seem to be they act like normal carnivores in that they're very inactive. So the, most of the time they're just hanging about watching what's going on, and then they no doubt charge down and grab a wallaby or a kangaroo or a pig or something. And uh, uh, and and so, one this this uh, uh, husband and wife, they I think they were Baptist ministers. They were, they were they were part of a, a, a you know a church community in a small town, uh, in in mainly in in, in uh, northeastern New South Wales, a locality um, beside the, the the big Clarence River, our biggest river in New South Wales, and mainly sugar growing, but bushland as well. Uh, and and they were having trouble with what they thought was was a uh, trespassers, uh, because they would hear as soon as they turned out their lights at night and went to bed, they would hear someone walking about in on the in the garden. And these are like, you know, the, the houses are uh, uh, fairly largest houses and situated on largest properties. It might be two or three. Four acres or something each property, or an acre at least, maybe half an acre. Uh, and uh, uh, and they they would turn on the light and they'd hear someone running away. They'd hear heavy footsteps, uh, and then they'd go back to bed and they'd hear something climbing on the side of the house, or they'd hear the front door rattling. And they'd turn the lights on and run out and see what's going on. And they'd find big mud muddy handprints on the on the doors and they'd phone the police uh, and and complain to the police regularly that we've got these trespassers and uh, that they're prowlers or they're kids on drugs or they're drug dealers or something they, so these are small towns with scattered houses uh, and in rural localities uh, and the police would say, "Oh yes, we get many reports. It's it's a madman that lives here, uh, and we've never been able to find where he lives. He only comes out at night. If anyone's seen him, he seems to be terribly hairy, <laughs> and uh, and 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 we've got and and so people believe naturally. Well, it must be a person, and they sometimes find big footprints, and they go, oh, my God, there's been a a huge man walking barefooted around our property in the night,' <laughs> and, uh, uh, and and and." and and, and then bushwalkers, of course, often have rocks thrown at them. Big rocks will come down and land right beside them. They almost never hit them, but, but land, uh, and and uh, and you'll be followed. And so I've talked to quite a few people, including my uh, our own daughter and and her partner, what uh, quite near our house because we live in the forest, where they were followed by um, one of these one of these animals. And they and they'll follow you and they'll run at you. You'll hear hear the big heavy footprints coming towards you, footsteps, thump, 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 thump. But they'll always stop before they actually break through the vegetation so you can see them. Now they've got to see them, see so one of these just run across um the track right behind them. And so they move very fast, uh, but they but they're unaggressive, they don't attack people. Uh, they sort of involve themselves in mock charges. So I've had people, kids, especially teenagers, and they're riding their bikes. And and suddenly a thing like a gorilla jumps out of the vegetation and starts running at them, roaring, <laughs> running on its hind legs. But they also run on all fours. So they're quadrupedal, uh, 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 knuckle walking as well as running. And then, of course, the kids run home. And then, of course, they tell. Tell their parents whatever you know the skate gorilla chased us, and of course the parents don't believe them and and so you've got the situation where where um these animals are being regularly reported, but most of the people can't believe that they actually exist because we've got no physical evidence whatsoever,
0: yeah, okay, so that's interesting in terms of physical evidence I mean, if one of these creatures died, it would probably be in its habitat and not likely to be found. But why do you think there is there isn't that level of physical evidence?
1: Ah, uh, yeah, simply because they, because they seem to be primarily predators, uh, and they and they and they are primarily nocturnal, and they have very large territories. and And this is this is both with the thylacine or Tasmanian tiger, uh, with the uh, marsupial lion, uh, and, and with the yowie and so they uh, if if you've got a nocturnal ambush predator the chance of you seeing it is very limited uh, uh, and uh, uh, because they can they're very tuned into the environment so they can see you long before you've been able to to notice them and and of course they're also careful about crossing roads like uh, australia's full of dingoes but no one ever runs over a dingo, you know, because the dingoes are watching and sometimes you'll see a dingo and as soon as they're, usually at night, sometimes in the daytime. A dingo is, of course, our native wild dog. It's, um, it, it's, it came from Southeast Asia and is distantly related to the, uh, to the Asian wolf uh, and they're usually a, a sort of a lovely uh, a- amber-brown colour uh, and uh, they howl just like wolves or dogs. They don't bark. Uh, and, and they're quite abundant uh, in many localities. And if you do see one, mainly it's crossing a road, and then of course it'll immediately run for its life. They usually tend to panic and run up the road, and uh, uh, but then run off into the bush. Uh, and so, uh, and so you rarely ever get a chance to, to see or photograph or film a video of, of a dingo, uh, and yet that's a common animal and it'll be the same thing i'd imagine say the united states where you've got coyotes and wolves and stuff but how often would you find a dead coyote or a dead wolf or something like that and you know you'd hear them howling at night and if you turned on your uh, light or you're driving your car you might see one cross the road so it's a bit like that they're they're not easy to detect Uh, and of course they mainly seem to live in really rugged country Uh, And so all you get is people's um, reports and and like a particularly interesting report that we got on radio and and people talk happy to talk live on radio about what we have seen. Uh, but we're we're more of a country radio station Uh, it's a big rural area with small towns of maybe a 5,000 or 10,000 or whatever and and lots of small villages with only a few hundred people and so one gentleman as for instance and this is about 15 years ago now he was driving through the forest on our main road between uh, uh, Brisbane and Sydney and he was uh, in near between Grafton and Coffs Harbour and it was you know one or two in the morning and of course Australia we don't have heavy traffic like in the UK you've got something like what 60 million and and where the size of you know United States are 25 million so out in the countryside there's very little traffic uh, uh though no, during the daytime between major cities of course there's a lot of traffic uh and so he's driving along and then he sees up ahead uh a, a man with a kangaroo over his shoulder and and he and he looks like he's wearing a big trench coat and he's he's absolutely startled because because this is deep in the forest there's no lighting at all except for the headlights and he's thinking oh my god look at this bushman he's but he caught himself a kangaroo He must be like some sort of a <laughs> you know a, a hobo or, or some sort of a, a a bush dweller and here he is walking around at night and he's thinking and he's approaching him, you know, at a, sixty miles an hour or something or other, and he's slowing down because he's this 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 person carrying a kangaroo, and kangaroos are big animals, uh, you know, the size of a small deer uh, over his shoulder, and he's thinking, "Oh my God, he's huge! This is a big man!" And then he realizes, as he gets closer to him, it's it's he's not wearing a coat; he's covered in hair. It's, it's a giant hair covered animal like a hairy man and then this chap telling talking to us on radio said and then as he crossed the road and he he was now right up to him by now but he'd crossed to the other side of the road and before he slowly drove by he realized oh my god there's a whole family of them this this is the man the the male and he's carrying a kangaroo dead kangaroo that he's killed um to the family and there's. uh, a, a big female and a uh, and a young one standing there, so we get lots of reports like that and another report I got fairly recently was from a local gentleman uh Brendan by name, and he's very much into cricket and he's in his mid-twenties and he'd been to a cricket match uh and he lives in Mullmbimbi and uh he'd driven over through the Mount Jerusalem National Park. It's just a, a gravel road with hardly any traffic on it at all. Goes over over a, a low mountain, covered in forest, of course, uh, uh, quite quite a large area, and then down to the next town, uh, there's a main road that you can follow that follows the the, uh, the the lowlands, but you can take a shortcut over the mountains. So, and all the locals take the shortcut, of course, because they know the roads. They're just rough gravel roads. Uh, and uh, so he was driving back uh, uh, just before uh, just just on dark, and he, uh, he he needed a call of nature. So he 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 stopped the car and uh, he uh, <laughs> got out and then he heard um, a howling sound and he thought oh that's a dingo and he thought oh, I'll howl back at it uh, and so he howled uh, and then when he howled there was a it, it, the reply was this horrific scream bellowing roaring scream and some animal came charging up towards him and he could hear these heavy footsteps and he got the fright of his life and he jumped back into the car, he'd turned the car engine off, so he had the lights off, but he turned these big spotlights on. A lot of rural people, we have big spotlights on our cars um, to shine up the road so we can see if there's any kangaroos or wallabies crossing the road or or even if cattle have got loose or in many places um, you, you drive through the farms, there's just cattle grids on the road. Uh, So there's no fences for the cattle or horses or anything. Uh, And so you you just got to have big spotlights so you don't hit any of the animals. Uh, And so he turned the spotlights on and there in front of him was this huge female thing like a gorilla uh, and it had breasts and the whole animal was covered in hair and had a face that reminded him of a gorilla. And uh, he just couldn't believe his eyes because he had seen... Uh, he'd heard stories but most people don't believe they actually exist because you know it's usual thing if they if they existed we'd know all about them uh and then so it was it was it was swaying backwards and forwards and it stood there for a couple of minutes and then he was hoping to get a photograph with his mobile phone because he was saying with his cell phone he was saying oh my my mates are never going to believe this and uh but, but before he could lift the phone up the animal had run away and and in another recent encounter uh, had with a, a gold prospector um who was staying uh, <laughs> staying in a cabin in, in the upper Clarence river uh and, and living uh, staying in this cabin uh that, that you can rent uh and uh, and go gold prospecting uh of course there's not huge amounts of gold they're just people that are enthusiasts and like to like to get a dish and and pan for their for their own little flecks of gold and he heard a large heavy animal moving about outside the cabin so he went outside to have a look at look at it and see most australians people especially people that live in small towns in the bush we know we we'll know our animals we're not frightened of them or anything and so he walked out um to the edge of the Of the flat where the cabin was above the creek and where it dropped down where he'd heard the sound of the animal he turned the torch on and he got the shock of his life because he was face to face with with this man and and for a moment he thought oh it must be another camper because down on the flat there people camp that also like to pan for gold or go fishing or what have you and 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 then he realized oh my god it's it's not a man it must be one of these Yowie's, but it was very man-like. So he was looking, he was a, he thought he was only a meter from it, but but he probably two or three meters. Uh, and it was about three meters tall. Um, but and he's about he was a tall man, he was a couple of meters tall, but they were especially face to face, and uh it was covered in hair, he got a perfect look, you know, they got they got low eyebrow ridges, uh, and it's not much of a chin, and it opened its mouth and it snarled at him and, and and he see its teeth and it were just like human teeth, but they were big teeth and they were and they were sort of yellowy, like he'd never cleaned his teeth. And then he was thinking, oh my God, this thing could kill me, but but they're not aggressive. And it just turned and ran for its life. And then just ran away, and uh, and he was still standing there shining the torch. Just up in shock, and like the whole thing. It only lasted, you know, a couple of minutes. But he said, you know, for one or two minutes, he was just standing there, illuminating <laughs> an Australian Bigfoot three meters away, just looking at him. And the and the Bigfoot's just looking at him, uh, and and they're not frightened of people, but they but they're unaggressive. And and I think that's because they lived with indigenous people for you know a hundred thousand years or. 70, 50, 60, 70,000 years and, and, and for the last few thousand years with dingoes and um, so Aboriginal people and dingoes, they were fabulous hunters. Uh, they didn't have bows and arrows, they had, they had spears and, and spear throwers and they were deadly accurate, deadly hunters and they had boomerangs, of course. And so, and and by Aboriginal tradition, they have names for them, they're very sacred animals and they call them the original people. They are the people that were here before we were uh, and, and they and and uh, th- they did occasionally kill Yaois, uh, and they said that the Yaoi people um, are very stupid. They're not cunning like people are, but they're very fast and they always run away. It's very hard to kill them, uh, and, and so they probably learnt a long time ago that you don't harm a person. And and they would see because they would see see us as like say, little Yaois that live on the flats. And and they're the, or they're, they're the big people that live in the forest. And, and the, but, but you don't mess with them because they can tell that we're, we're not prey. Like you can imagine if you walk into a, a forest glen and there's deer there, or in our case, kangaroos, say. You can tell a, a prey animal because if there's any kind of a disturbance, it'll look and then it'll go for its life, you know, because it doesn't want to be, it's not going to take any chances. It, it, and people um if there's any kind of stims, the people run up to see what's going on, they have a look. And so that shows you, oh, that's a dangerous predator. And so and they probably know that that if they harmed a person, the people would hunt them down, like the Aboriginal people would could would definitely hunt them down if they killed Aboriginal people. Uh but um so they regarded them as relatively uh, uh harmless and very sacred.
0: Yeah. It's interesting there, Gary, you talk about the relationship that first nations and aboriginal people in australia have with creatures such as the Yowie. um and that culture has a, a unique cosmology and an understanding of the world with your own research and especially the citizen science work you've done talking to people have there been cases where it feels like there might be a, something more supernatural going on with some of the encounters people have had
1: no, I don't think so. No, the uh, the uh, indigenous people, First Nation, Aboriginal people, they say that these animals are true living animals. They're not. They're not um, paranormal. Uh, they're actually flesh and blood animals that live in the environment, and, and they describe uh, at two different species that they see, or at least they're... they're uh, their grandparents and parents saw because they were living in uh, that much more natural lives in in the bushland, in the forests, uh, and on beaches, and so they had uh, more interactions with uh, the environment, with the wildlife than they, um, most um, modern people do, who are all living in cities and got jobs including most of the First Nation people. Uh, and so, yeah, they say that there was two different uh, uh, species of people uh, that were here before uh, the Aboriginal people arrived. So they called them the old people, and uh, they know a great deal about them. And so the two types, the uh, the very large uh a uh, uh, hairy people uh, and of course each each locality had a different name for them uh, and so in the uh, in the Bundjalung area of northern New South Wales they were known as uh, cherawara uh, and uh, further south uh, they were known by a number of different names depending on the language groups because there were uh, there were, I think about three or four hundred different languages here in Australia um, before uh, European settlement, uh, and uh, uh, and then uh, the the second species is a very small species. It only stands about a meter high, uh, and in this area they're known as uh, Nimbingis. Uh, and in Queensland they're known as janjaris. And uh, and they also had they had English names for them as well because as as uh, European settlements spread like this two hundred years ago now or one hundred and fifty years ago, and the the first Australians uh, were coming to grips with these new settlers and and working for them mainly as farm labourers and horsemen you know and of course they were they were brilliant. Uh, undertaking anything or work anything to do with the natural environment or working on farms and you know wonderful horsemen and and wonderful um people with their hands etc but they were still operating culturally as well but the uh the white people the, the English people had no interest in the indigenous culture they're only interested in their own culture and so they They didn't. They didn't because they didn't really ask questions. They didn't learn much as to what the uh, the first Australians knew about the environment and these and these people. Uh, And uh, so the what we refer to as Yawies these days, uh, and that name came from uh, sort of central or southern, mainly central New South Wales. I think central inland New South Wales. Uh, where the word yaoi was used and it was also Yahoo and and, and a variety of number of names. Uh, uh, because the people, although they intermingled to a degree, they all had their home territories uh, and they were uh, they were farmers, uh, farming the, the natural environment, so very sustainable and also hunting and gathering. Uh, and uh so they really knew the landscape and they knew the wildlife uh, and they uh, did not regard these two uh different species of hairy people as particularly dangerous uh but they did avoid them, they knew exactly where they lived, and so they avoided them uh because it'd be quite frightening to to suddenly encounter uh one of these amazing human-like beings, uh, and they uh, are very sacred, uh, as as all animals and plants are, because they had a very conservative society, uh, which was little changed for tens of thousands of years. And so, uh, you know, they regarded the landscape as the way uh, uh, God or the creator by Amy or uh created the landscape and so you didn't mess about with it <laughs> like that's the way it was supposed to be and you you didn't change things you're a, you're able to take advantage of the environment so you could uh, you know cut down uh, small trees to make tools or or or, to, or or to make shields and use uh special stones and carve them to make stone axes uh, uh, with timber handles and and uh, you're able to hunt and fish and, and and undertake all kinds of of activities. But you had to be respectful of the environment and they understood that they didn't own the environment, the, un- the environment owned them. Uh, and so th- their understanding of real- reality, of course, is much more accurate to our um, Western understanding of reality, which is utterly false in that, you know, we're... We're, we're isolated and apart from the environment, where in fact we're, we're actually a part of the environment. So um, uh, being an Australian, I've always regarded that, that, um, that uh, Aboriginal culture is the Australian culture and it's much more uh, 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 sensible than the than the Western culture, which, which is sort of like a divide and conquer and compete and destroy and take whatever you want. And, you know, it's a destructive culture, as we know. And then, as you were growing up as a child, you, uh, you were initiated into all kinds of uh, 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 degrees of, of adulthood. And so, one of the one of the uh, initiations uh, was that you had to go on a a Yowie dreaming path or walk. And I've had First Nation elders describe exactly what happened to them. Uh, and they're elderly, elderly men now, say, but um, they are talking about what happened to them when they were when they were um, young men, teenagers. So they would have to follow a particular prescribed path through the forest. This particular um, situation was down in southern New South Wales, and they'd have to walk for days uh, through through the forest, climbing up the ranges. And walking through the localities where the the doulagalals lived in that area, they referred to them as Doulagalals for memory. and and uh, each night you um you you're camped in the in the bushland in the forests, uh, and you're carrying very little with you. Uh, and uh, and um, you always made sure that you ate all your food uh, and didn't leave anything lying about because that would attract the Doolagals in. Uh, the hairy men and uh, uh, on hairy women, and, uh, uh, and and you set up um, four little fires around you to sort of keep you safe, and then you had to actually see uh, a doula girl, you had to encounter a doula girl before you could then continue your initiation to become uh, a, a fully functioning adult. And um, this gentleman that I was chatting with and writing down the information. Uh, he he uh, uh, described how he they they actually saw a yaoi and then they're able to to um, return back home to the coast and then there was a, a special lagoon where you had to bathe uh, 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 and of course they they use ochre sacred ochre sacred earths and they would and they would, uh, and they would um, uh, so the the initiate young initiated y- young man would be covered in this sacred ochre and then he'd have to wash. Off the ochre in this sacred lagoon, uh, and and uh, and this place was very sacred for the little the little um, hairy people, the Jundjadis. Uh and uh, and sure enough, they saw a couple of these Janjadis uh, watching them, uh, and then they and then they they uh, the young boy would wash himself in the lagoon, and they believed that the ochre. Uh, would then that would turn into a junjuddy like down in, into the as, as it washed down the, the creek or what have you so uh, and then there's another locality in that same area uh, it, it's known uh, at, in an English name as, as uh, Pigeon House Mountain uh, and uh, it, it's a national park down there uh, and uh, it's a very rugged sandstone gorge country and they have a a, a dreaming story about the, uh, uh, the, the that landscape was created by uh the, the big Yowies and the and the little janjadis fighting and the reason that, that the place is covered in great blocks of of stone and and gorges and everything was that was that was the uh, the <laughs> The the uh, uh, turmoil and the fighting between the different Yaois uh, created that that landscape, uh, and and uh, and so the the uh, the people are still encountering Junjudies and and for instance I had a national park ranger, an indigenous man, a bunjalung man, uh, come for a, a chat and because we live right ad, um, adjacent. Uh, the Billy Nagel Nature Reserve, is on both sides of our property, and we're right on the song lines very close to the most important um, Bunjalung uh, ceremonial site uh, uh, by which, um, by Bunjalung tradition, uh, 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 First Nation law, Bunjalung law, was created uh, and spread uh, across the country and, and and so and they they call these song lines uh where the people would sing and, and move through the through this the countryside in a particular direction and undertake ceremonies and so I was chatting this to this um gentleman and he was saying that um yeah they're working on um a, a very spe- spectacular and sacred mountain here um, known as Wollumbin uh and Named by Captain James Cook in 1770 as Mount Warning because uh, it warned the uh, uh, the ship, the Endeavour, that uh, uh, there the, the, was the most easily pointed in Australia and you could see this spectacular isolated mountain peak. It's actually a volcanic plug uh, in the centre of one of the world's largest ancient volcanic calderas covered in rainforest and uh, there was a walking track to the summit of this and during a Cyclonic weather; the track was destroyed, and they had to repair the track. Uh, and uh, so, the, the national park rangers and workers, and so they, they, uh, I think they had a helicopter to to, to bring in their their working equipment, and it was left there. And and uh, they, they said you could see the tracks where the Jun jundjundis, Jun the little um, meter tall, hairy people, uh, would be moving around. Uh, and they they found all this hair that had been plaited, the plaits of hair had been placed on top of the uh, the equipment, the box of tools that they left there overnight. And they said, oh, that was definitely Janjadis, and they plait their hair, uh, and 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 uh, left it there as a sort of a, a warning or a gift or something or or whatever to say that you know that uh, we're here. Uh, and then one of the ranges actually saw one of these Janjadis walk across. The track right in front of him, and they look like uh, look a bit like a uh, like a bipedal chimpanzee, a- and we can only assume that it's very possibly they're actually surviving hobbits, uh, a species of human uh, uh, with the scientific name of Homo floresiensis, uh, that lived on the island Indonesian island of Flores, uh, and uh, it was only discovered about. Twenty years ago, now I guess uh, they discovered some miniature humans skeletons, uh, and studying them showed that it looks like it's closely related to Homo, Homo habilis, which is a very ancient African African uh, uh, human before Homo erectus, and they and they believe they existed right from Africa all around to Southeast Asia. During the ice ages, when the rainforest had declined and the and the place was covered in African savanna with all the African animals, and they seem to have got all the way across to the uh, across the Wallace Line, the the the, the deep ocean narrow narrow um, uh, straits between Indonesia and Australia, and on the Indonesian side of the uh, Asian animals, and on the Australian side of the Australian animals, and so these hobbits had got across to the Australian side. Uh, and uh, and were found their skeletons were found in this cave, and uh, 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 the people say, "Oh, yeah, they're still here. They're still running around up there." And they describe the same little hairy people as the uh, new as the Australian uh, indigenous people describe. Uh, and so that yes, yeah, so there's an enormous amount of information and knowledge on both the 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 tall yowies, which are massive animals, you know, that stand. Two to three meters high, and the little hobbits, or or Jandjadis or or nimbinjis, uh, and various other names, and they're known right across Australia, They're known in Western Australia as well. Uh, but but of course, the majority of of uh, westerners in Australia, then you know, and we've got every kind of people that have that have um, migrated to Australia. Uh, they've got no knowledge of the of these. Uh, animals or people at all they're, they're completely ignorant because they're they're living their city lives and their whole lives are involved in surviving and raising kids and paying mortgages and working <laughs> they don't know anything about uh, the forests and, and that none of them believe for one second that 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 we could have two two unknown species of human living amongst us
0: right yeah it's really fascinating Gary, this has been a really interesting conversation. Thank you so much for being a guest on the podcast.
1: Oh, you're most welcome. Yeah, I'm always happy to talk about uh, this fascinating subject. And it, it's it's a really important subject as well, because uh, if if these species were um, scientifically discovered, and the trouble is we don't have any bodies and we're not going to go and kill any anything or whatever, but if we are ever a- able to defined and deceased individual say uh, uh, it would be an astounding thing for humanity because suddenly we'd realize that no we're not the only humans there's other humans living amongst us um, that we're completely oblivious to because they're they're very rare uh, they're very cryptic uh, and uh, uh, and they live in the forest and because they're totally adapted to the forest just like any other animal uh, uh they uh, are fully aware of their environment so so they can tell when people are about and and uh, uh, and, and remain hidden though uh there's mm. we've got hundreds of reports of of yowies the big yowies mainly um scaring the hell out of out of bushwalkers and what have you uh and throwing rocks at them mm. Uh, but they never harm them. They never harm people. They throw the, these big rocks suddenly come flying through the air when you're walking in the forest uh and land beside you. But, but they never hit you, and and or they'll follow you, uh and and uh, and they're just trying to they're just trying to uh, make sure that you le- leave their territory, go back go back to where you belonged. Don't come out into our locality. All right.
0: I mean that would work on me. <laughs> um... If people want to find out more about you and your research and your work, how best do they do that?
1: I've got a a self-published book that's available in a digital edition, uh, and it's called Australian Cryptozoology, and it's available at Amazon. And uh, I've got a Facebook site, it's called Australian Cryptozoology, Gary Opit. Uh, But uh, to really research the astounding cryptozoological animals that are existing in Australia, uh, you simply have to go online and and look at the number of sites devoted to to Yowies and and to other other species. And one of the most popular, the one that um, I've got a good friend, Dean Harrison, uh, he set it up many years ago, and it's called Australian Yowie Research, A-Y-R, and commonly known as Yowie Hunters. They don't hunt Yowies, but they they search for them. They're able to get some very interesting uh, FLIR, uh heat signatures of two Yowies while they're camping out. There's another Facebook site called Sightings, and, and, and you just have to put Yowie, Y A W I E uh into google and and a variety of these uh facebook uh, sites will come up and you'll be able to read of literally hundreds of of encounters all over particularly eastern australia it's astounding how many people are seeing them that might only happen two or three times or once in their life but uh it, they happen again and again and particularly in certain localities so they're living virtually right beside us
0: Yes. Yeah, very interesting i'll i'll put information about your book and your facebook group in the show notes
1: okay thank you very much brilliant thank you gary you're welcome bye-bye
0: thank you so much for listening to my conversation with gary he has an encyclopedic knowledge of cryptozoology in australia and we barely scratched the surface of the subject in the interview hopefully I'll be able to get him back on soon for a follow-up chat. His book and Facebook group are worth checking out if you enjoyed this episode. Please also rate it and leave a short review wherever you listen, as it really helps to promote the podcast and grow an audience. Sharing it on social media and just telling a friend are really helpful too. You can follow some other Sphere on X, Blue Sky and Mastodon, and subscribe on most of the well-known podcast platforms. You can also support the upkeep of the podcast with a donation via Ko-fi. Details on how to do that are in the show notes. If you'd like to email me here at Sphere HQ, the address is someothersphere at gmail.com. It would be lovely to hear from you, with your thoughts about an episode you've recently listened to, or suggestions for future guests and topics. Until next time, be safe and well, and I hope you'll join me again soon for another episode of Some Other Sphere.